the value of love. Paul truly transitions in this incredible portion of Scripture here. 1 Corinthians 13 is, um, is known quite frequently as the love chapter of the Bible, and we'll see that here this morning. Let's read just the first three verses this morning. Just as we get into the chapter, we'll continue journeying through it in weeks ahead. The Bible says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Father, I thank you for your word, for the incredible nature of your word. It is rich, it is powerful. Your word tells us it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and how true that is. God, your word is incredible this morning. And God, I want us to truly to see what your word teaches us about love. And I pray that you would help us this morning to see the value of the love of God. Not just simply in that in which we receive, but that in which we edify through the working of charity in our own lives, the working of love. Help us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. In chapter 12, if you'll remember, we looked at spiritual gifts. Paul has been teaching and training this church, this young church, on how to operate as a church and how to do things decently and in order. And in chapter 12, we're not going to re-preach those messages, but we saw the value of gifts, that they are a tool. If you remember, there was a purpose for those gifts. That purpose was simple. It was to edify Jesus. It was to state Jesus is Lord. The Bible teaches us that that goal there was to further Jesus among the church and, of course, edify and preach Christ around the world. Paul clearly taught the church in Corinth that these gifts were to be used as tools. Tools. Simply a means to further Jesus Christ. In the last verse of chapter 12, verse number 31, notice how he ends this chapter. He says, And yet I show unto you a more excellent way. Paul said, I'm going to show you a better way. We talk about gifts, we think about gifts, but I'm going to show you something that's better. I'm going to show you something that is greater in every way. I'm going to show you how to use the tool, if we can put it that way. Years ago, I taught my oldest son, David, on how to use the strimmer in the garden. 
and they do most of the mowing around the around the house, uh, which is a blessing. Amen. Uh, especially with someone who has developed allergies like I have. And glory to God, hallelujah, send the boys out, amen. And uh, they go and they'll do it. Of course, one day they're going to leave and it's going to fall back on me, is it not? And so, but for such a time as this, God is, God is blessed with some wonderful, hardworking boys. And I remember teaching him how to use the strimmer. And as you go around the fence and you have those fence posts, and those fence posts are there, of course, to keep the fence upright, but the grass doesn't know that. It knows just to grow every single which way all around the fence post. And when you come to strim, if you don't get it right, you're going to have these bits of grass that are going to grow and just become like little antennas that are going to come out and say, hey, I'm here, and they become an eyesore. And I remember teaching them how to use it and how to do the strimming around the fence and I said okay it's your turn I showed you now you begin doing it and he began to do it watching what I watched I saw him watch and I watched how he did it as well and he came to those fence posts I showed him how to do it but he was having a difficult time he was trying to get those last bits of grass but he couldn't quite get it and after a few moments I said David let me show you something let me show you a better way. And I showed him how he could tilt that strimmer just a little bit. And that tilting would enable that strimmer just to get a little further down into it. Just enough to get those last bits of grass. He wasn't doing it wrong. He was still strimming. But there was a better way. There was a better way to use that tool. It was the same tool. I did the, use the exact same strimmer. I used the exact same tools that he was using, but he was struggling until I showed him there was a better way to use that tool. God has given us all tools, spiritual gifts. And God, through Paul, shows us a better way to use these spiritual gifts. The Bible teaches us that Paul speaks of charity. What is charity? We think of, when we think of charity, we think of a lot of the charitable organizations around us today. And there's many. There's a lot of charities out today. But what does that mean, charity? That word charity is the action word of love. Do you know it's possible to love and not have charity? God teaches us that. Someone can say they love, but if they don't ever put it in practice, it's not truly love. It's not the kind of love that God speaks of. This word charity is action. If you were a member, a few months ago we looked at James about faith without works is dead. Speaking to the Christian, faith is action. Faith is movement. Faith is us taking our belief and our hope and putting it into action. And that is faith. That's biblical faith. The Bible teaches us that charity is love 
and works. It's love in action. It's the action of love. And that love is an agape type of love. What do we mean by that agape type of love? Well, there's different words for love in the Bible. There's a word that speaks of a self-gratifying type of love, a very lustful love. We think of this love so often because it is something that is prominent on nearly every TV station, every movie in which you watch. It is similarly prominent on almost anything today in which it is a love that simply looks to fulfill my own desires, my own lust, and my own wants. No matter if it hurts someone else, no matter if it hurts everyone around me, that's what I want, and I'm not going to stop to get it. That's a very selfish love. That's not the love in which God is speaking of here. There's a love that the Bible speaks of that speaks of a fondness, Obviously, I grew up in the U.S. As I grow up in the U.S., there is a crisp there that I absolutely love. It's called Ruffles. But it's not just a plain Ruffles crisp. It's a cheddar and sour cream crisp. And oh my soul, those will be on the marriage supper of the Lamb. I guarantee you they will be in heaven one day. They are wonderful And there are times where I look at the shops and I think I would like some cheddar and sour cream ruffles. Where can I get those? And you cannot find those anywhere in any of the shops. You can find them online. But then I look at the price tag when they come online. One bag about the size of Dorito, of a bag of Doritos, is about 20 quid. And I thought, I'm fond of Ruffles cheddar and sour cream chips, but I'm not that fond of Ruffles cheddar and sour cream chips uh, or crisp. I'm not going that far. That's, That's a little too much for me. So I'm fond of those things, but I'm not fond enough to move into action to pay that kind of money. That's another kind of love that the Bible describes. We see that around us today. The type of love that God defines here in charity is a deep abiding love. A deep love. This love we have seen edified or have seen practiced in a missionary whom we mentioned just a few moments ago, Robert Murillo. Robert Murillo, of course, suffered for a long time with uh, uh, with needing a kidney transplant and now, of course, with covid And if you were to follow his ministry or to follow uh, even his uh, social media, you'll see that his wife has been moved to action. How she has cared and ministered for Robert, even in those times in which he could not minister to her, even in those times in which he could not reciprocate that love because of illness because of disease and because of what he has been struggling with she has decided to love with a deep abiding love for better or for worse in sickness and in health and she has chosen to do and to follow that marriage vow and to truly to love him in a deep abiding love no matter the circumstance. 
That's the kind of love that God is speaking of here. A deep abiding love that's not looking for a reciprocation or for what I can get out of this, but rather I have chosen to love and I am going to help. I'm going to serve. I'm going to do that which is right and what is good for them, even when it's difficult for me. God describes this kind of love. I want to show you ten themes of this love before we get into the message. Don't worry, long introduction, very short message this morning. But I want us to see and to understand the context of this agape love in action. This love in action, which is charity. This agape love is truly described in many ways. The Bible teaches us in John chapter 17, verse number 26, that this love is the same love that the Father has for the Son. God the Father has for God the Son. The Bible tells us in John 17, verse number 26, And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. What was Jesus speaking of? He was speaking of that deep love that the Father, God the Father, has for His only begotten Son. There was a deep abiding love, a love truly that surpasses our understanding and the depth and how we can ever love one another. God's love is limitless. It's boundless. It's without, uh, without any restrictions. And God the Father deeply, abidingly loves God the Son. That love is vast. That love is is eternal god loves his son not only does god love his son but the bible teaches us secondly that god loves his people that god loves people in john chapter 3 verse number 16 very familiar verse for god so loved the world the bible teaches us that god so loves that deep abiding love did what? It moved God to action. God loves people. I'm thankful that he says he loves the world. How much confusion and chaos we see in the world today over what ethnicity you're from or what culture you have resided in. But God says, I love the world. You see, there's one race. It's called the human race. There's many cultures, there's men, many ethnicities, but we all have the same father going all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's many, many generations, but we all go back to the same father. We all are of the same race. Thank God for that. And God loves the world. doesn't matter if you're red, yellow, black, and white. Jesus loves the children in his sight. Thank God for that. He loves the world. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what background you have. It doesn't matter where you are in the world listening this morning. God loves you, and that deep abiding love has moved God to give us the Savior. God loves people. God loves deeply his own people. In John chapter 14, verse number 21, 
The Bible says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. The Bible teaches us that God loves his people. God loves those who follow him, that desire to serve and to and yea, show that love by following him, by putting their faith and trust in Christ, by following his instruction. God loves his people. As a child of God, God loves his children. Thank God he loves me. That hasn't changed. He loves me. He loves his children. If you're a child of God, he deeply loves you. Yes, he loves the world, and yes, he loves those who put their faith and trust in Christ. Sometimes the devil kind of beguiles us in that means, does he not? God doesn't love you anymore. God's kicking you out to the side of, the, of his family. God's putting you in the corner somewhere. He doesn't really love you. That's the devil speaking. God loves you. God loves his people. He hasn't forgotten you. He loves you. God loves his people. God loves the world. God loves his son. And it is perfectly cherished in the Lord Jesus. It's perfectly demonstrated. It's fully displayed. It is fully shown in none other than Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 14, notice what Scripture says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love, wherewith He loved us. God's love is perfectly cherished it's perfectly enshrined it's perfectly encapsulated if we can put it that way in none other than the lord jesus christ he is truly a, the greatest picture of love one could ever see he is truly the very definition of charity of that agape love this love is commanded love in John chapter 13, verse number 34, God says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. In 1 John chapter 2, we will see John once again speaking of that love, that deep, agape, abiding love. And as he speaks of that, he writes once again, affirming that commandment that Jesus Christ gave. He says in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse number 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. John was saying there's a commandment, there's a love that is commanded. This type of love is commanded to you and me. It's a love in which we are instructed to have. Notice what the Bible tells us in 
verse number uh, Romans chapter 15, verse number 2, this love seeks the welfare of others. It seeks the welfare of others. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 15, verse number 2, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. The Bible teaches us that this love is to edify, that we are to look to encourage, to help, and to seek the welfare of others. Others ought to be put before us. We ought to be one that truly looks to seek and to want to serve others. Our love, that love that God commands us to love, looks to the benefit or to the welfare of others. The Bible teaches us that this love is godlike and a part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit as a life is yielded to Him. Galatians chapter 5, verse number 22. The Bible says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. The fruit of the Spirit this morning is love. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit of God. And God tells us that as we yield and as we follow Him, that He truly gives us a love or a heart for that deep abiding love. But I want you to see that it's also a decision. God gives us many, many commands in the Scripture, does He not? We think, obviously, of the Ten Commandments. There's so many that God gives us and instructs us by. Not to hurt us, but to protect us. He knows where there's a cliff. He knows where there's danger ahead. He says, don't go that way. Stay on the course. But just as I decide to follow the instructions of God, I decide... I make a choice to have that deep abiding love. This love is a decision love. It's a commanded love. And God would not command us to do something that we cannot do. It is deepened, it is broadened by the wonderful Holy Spirit of God and God's Spirit helps us and gives us the grace to have that love. It is all by grace, but it is a decision. That love is a decision that you and I must make. I cannot make this decision for you, nor can you make it for me. Each of us personally must choose to have this charity, this agape love in action. But not only is it decisionary, but number nine, it is costly. It is costly. We used this verse a moment ago. We'll use it once again, John chapter 3, verse number 16. For God so loved the world, notice what happens, that He gave His only begotten Son. It cost something. This love cost. This love comes with a price tag. This love will cost us time. It will cost us efforts. It will cost us resources. It will cost us, yea, in some, in, in, uh, in some instances through society, it has even cost one's life. It is truly is without, or excuse me, it is truly with cost. It is costly, but it is godly. God truly 
turned his back on his only begotten son on the cross as he became sin for us. He became sin for you and I. He became what God could never, uh, could never become as he paid a price on the cross for our sins. And God the Father had to turn his back on his only begotten son while he was there on the cross. How much it cost God the Father. It comes with a cost. It comes with a price. And this cost, this price, demands the care of and welfare of the loved one. This love will move someone to pay a price regardless whether the welfare involves hurting or healing, but it always involves helping, seeking the welfare of others. Lord willing, in just a couple of weeks, I'll have an operation I've been waiting for for over a year and a half now. A gallbladder operation. I'll be many stones lighter on April the 25th. Amen? <laughs> go, in, go in with many stones, go out with less. Amen? Uh, I'll have to have a whole new wardrobe after that operation, right? But, you know, the, there's going to be some hurt. Incisions will need to be made. There will be some hurt involved, but notice it's for my welfare. There are times where this agape love knows that it is required to make a spiritual incision. It hurts for a time, but it's not just a hurt to hurt, it's a hurt to love back to hell. It's a hurt knowing that this is what is best at the moment because you're wanting and going to, by the, God, by the grace of God, use that agape love to bring health and healing once again back to that individual. It is a time in which one looks and says there is a great, greater means, there's a greater time. Yes, this is a difficult conversation. Yes, this is a difficult time in my relationship, but I'm willing to entertain this. I'm willing to have this conversation. I'm willing willing to go through this time why because i know it's for the welfare it's for the better of a relationship sometimes it's a relationship of wanting to help and to encourage a wound has come in not one that you had to inflict but you are willing to come alongside and say look we can cry together we can weep together just as romans 15 spoke of as we talked uh, uh, as we spoke a moment ago of uh, of yea of the queen and uh, losing her husband of 73 years and a time of where one shoulders and said let's cry together let's weep together let's have some time of healing together let's enjoy a time in which we can try to bring health and healing to one another's soul and spirit there's a time in healing but there's also a time where maybe a little bit of hurt needs to come in not because you're trying to inflict a wound but you know that that operation is necessary to bring health back to that individual. Sin is a tumor. It's leprosy. It's cancerous. There are times where a tumor or that leprosy or that cancer of sin comes in. 
And a difficult conversation might need to come in where, okay, we need to have an operation. I don't want to simply operate just because there's no necessary, but that tumor, that cancer is large. We need to have a time of bringing healing, using the salve of the word of God to bring health once again. Charity demands the care and welfare of a loved one. These ten characteristics go into that agape love. Into that charity love. That love that moves. That deep abiding love that moves us. And that love is valuable. Have you ever found an antique item? Something that you thought was of little value or of no value at all. First thing that came to my mind was just that of a simple lock. You know, there are some locks out there that we look at and say, it's just a lock, it's no big deal. But you take it to an antique, jewel, an antique dealer, and because that lock has a symbol on it, that symbol means it came from a company that was years and years ago, and the price tag, because of that symbol that's on that lock, suddenly the value of what looks to be almost worthless suddenly increases in value and you think well maybe i'm just going to get a little bit of money for the scrap metal in which it's worth but suddenly said no this is several thousands of pounds worth of antique uh, uh, history that you have found this is of great value why because it has that symbol it has that signature it has that identification indicating its value and its preciousness that's what charity is. Charity adds the symbol. Charity adds that value. It takes a tool that is seemingly, at times, useless, of little value. And it increases that tool's value beyond what you could ever imagine or compare. But the symbol, that impression of the love of God, adds so much value. Years ago, I decided to sell one of my baseball cards. I have a somewhat of a large collection that I've stored for years. There was a card that I wanted to sell. It had a signature on it. It wasn't a famous, famous baseball player, but one that did well in the major leagues. And I wanted to sell it because as I looked up on a price guide that the signature said it would be worth about $20 or so. Like I said, he wasn't a famous player, but one that was well known and added value. He was a fairly recent player at that time. Surely it's probably increased by now. And I thought, okay, $20 signed, that would be a great thing. I thought, you know, there's some things that I would like to have, and this baseball card's nice, but I, I would rather have that $20 so I can go out and buy that. So I thought, oh, this is going to be great. So I found a shop that dealt with sporting items and bought and sold cards, and I took it to him, and I was expecting him to say, oh, look at this nice card. It's going to be, you know, $25 instead of $20. You're going to give me above the price guide is what I was thinking. He looked at it, 
And he says, I'll give you $5. I thought, what? It's signed. And he looks at it and he says, do you see how it is signed then? So what do you mean? He said, there were some cards printed for a limited edition where the signature is not authentic, it is rather just printed. It's different. You know, I could take a piece of paper and I could sign it, and you can go out and sell it for hundreds and hundreds of quid, I'm sure. Uh, no, you'll probably have to give them hundreds and hundreds of quid to take uh, to take it. It's probably what's going to take place. But uh, there were some cards that were signed by the very hand of the player. Then there were some cards that were printed. In other words, he signed one, and then they used a machine to just print it on the cards. It was a limited edition, so it wasn't worth maybe the 20 cents it would be worth without any signature, but because it was printed and wasn't authentically signed, its value was not there. Charity adds an authentic signature to the work in which God gives, to the tool that God gives us to use through the wisdom of His Holy Spirit. You see, this decisive love of God, this decisive love of God adds great value. But without it, it loses value. In arithmetic, we would call this multiplying by zero. You could have a million, you could have one million six hundred and ninety-five thousand pounds of digits on a screen, but if you multiply it by zero, it doesn't increase the value, does it? Suddenly everything is gone. It looked great, it looked valuable, but without that multiplier everything loses its value. But suddenly, if you were to take that same number and multiply it by 10, suddenly the value increases. You see, the love of God is that multiplier. The love of God increases. That charity, that deep abiding love of God that is decisive and in action adds value to the gifts that God gives, but without that multiplier, without that value, it does not increase the value, but it loses value and makes it worth little. And Paul even says, nothing at times. The love of God is the multiplier to the value of a spiritual gift. Say, what do we mean by that? Let's look at our text this morning. I want us to see three things here this morning. First of all, let's look at this thought of communication without love. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, notice what the Bible says in verse number 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling symbol. Paul speaks about two things that are vital in communicating to others. First of all, it is a communication of speaking different tongues. 
That word tongues there, again, is languages. Paul was speaking about communicating the gospel, communicating the good news of Jesus Christ from one language, from English to Spanish, from Spanish to English, from English to Romanian, and on and on we can go. All the different languages that we uh, see in our world today. It is taking the truth and interpreting or giving it in another language so another language group or people group could understand notice paul introduces this by saying that word though that word though is a greek subjunctive mood what does that mean if we were to place that word word with the word if it would be equivalent to that in our english language though or if though i speak with the tongues or if i would speak with the tongues of men and of angels in other words he's speaking of someone taking the truth and speaking that truth you know that the word of god is to be spoken but it's supposed to be spoken in truth the bible tells us in ephesians chapter 4 but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head even christ god tells us that the truth of what god wants us to be uh, wants us to pour, uh, 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 to tell others is to be spoken in love to love you know there are times where that truth as we stated a moment ago is sometimes operative it inflicts a wound but for the better to remove that which is cancerous or tumorous or of sinful nature out in essence and then there are times where it's healing and that's a difficult thing sometimes a teacher a pastor sometimes a minister of the gospel has to speak the truth of god knowing that the truth of god is going to be operative And when he does so, or when that word is given, it is always at a risk. What is the risk? The risk is to be deciphered as a personal attack or an agenda. That's not what a true minister of the word of God would ever approach to do. If he uses his pulpit as a simply as a bullying tool, that's not scriptural. That's not right. But if he speaks the truth, the word of God, in love, knowing that it's the truth, knowing that it's going to be operative in some way, he does so at a risk, knowing that he might be understood, that his motives might be misconceived, but he is willing to do so. Why? Because he is willing to deal with the hard situations at times, so that way health may come don't want to leave a cancer into a spiritual body you want to have that operation you want to remove that tumor out so that way healing can begin this truth is spoken in love sometimes it is healing sometimes it's very grace giving it's always done in grace sometimes that action of grace is a healing sometimes it's operative But the means in which one is to speak the truth of the word of God is to be done in love. And Paul says, as we speak the truth, as we teach others in different languages, it ought to be done in love. It ought to be done not looking 
for a position or for an authority. Years ago, I was speaking out on the west coast of the United States in a Spanish church. And this Spanish church had a, most, was mostly from Mexico and that area of the world. And as I was speaking, there was an interpreter that, of course, was taking what I said in English and translating into Spanish. And this interpreter loved what he was doing. He loved his people. He loved the people in his church, and you could tell it. There was times where, as I was saying one sentence, he was getting more excited about that one sentence than I was as I was giving him that sentence to state. There was almost a time where I thought, why don't you just read my notes? I'll sit down and I'll watch you preach, because I think you could preach it better than I could say it. Say it. He loved it. He was excited, and he was getting his spirit into it. And Oh, he was a dynamic translator that was powerful in delivery. Why? Because there was a love in his heart for the people in which God had given him, and that love compelled him to action. It compelled him to not simply state, God so loved the world. Okay, this is what it says, God so loved the world. I've had some interpreters like that where I thought, are you alive? Are you just simply a robot? Are you Siri? You know, what's going on? And then I've had others like him who truly enjoyed the interpretation. That's what God is speaking of here. That's what Paul is addressing here. Paul says when it comes time to interpret, to give the gospel, to give the good news of Christ, and you're simply having no heart to it, there's no love for people, there's no love behind it of God, he says it becomes as what? As sounding brass. It's like a banging a gong uh, uh, and just banging and banging and banging it. Oh, it makes a sound, but that's about all. It becomes almost irritating after a while. Or as a sounding symbol, as a tinkling symbol. I like symbols when they're played at the right time, at the right place, in an orchestra or in a group. They're wonderful. But if that's all you hear, if my wife just had a piano of nothing but simply sounding symbols, all of us would go mad after a time, would we not? It's overpowering, and Paul says that's what it's like. He even uses the terminology, even if I spoke in an angel's language. You know, we look at that, and some people interpret that in just a, such an odd way. Say, oh, you've got to have some spiritual heavenly language. Why? Has any of us ever been to heaven and spoke with Gabriel this morning? No? I, I haven't. I don't know what language they speak in, in heaven. I really don't. But it really doesn't matter, does it? Because when we get there, we'll understand it. And Paul said, if I have been to heaven and I know the language that Gabriel and Michael and all the angels communicate there with and come and give it to you, he says, even if you knew it and I didn't have the love of God, and you knew it and I wasn't giving it through the love of God, it would just simply be as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Some noise. Oh, it might benefit a little, but it's not having that value of love that makes a difference. The love of God adds value 
to speaking the truth. Secondly, as we think about this communication, look at verse number two quickly. The Bible says, And though I have the gift of prophecy, notice now towards the end of the verse here, we're going to go back to the middle part in just a moment, and have not charity, I am nothing. The gift of prophecy. What is the gift of prophecy? The gift of prophecy is seeing the truth of God and relaying the truth to others. And Paul says, if I see the truth of God, he truly had the gift of prophecy as well as the gift of, of course, that apostolic gift of giving the word of God. But Paul said, even though I see or have the truth of God and relay it to others, it is of no value, no value if it's not done in love. You know, the Bible gives us an illustration of this very thing. Go to the book of Numbers, please, with me. I want you to see this. Again, we're seeing the value of love, the value of love in action, of love working together with a gift that God so wonderfully gives. The Bible tells us in Numbers chapter 22, notice what the Bible says in verse number 1. And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And Moab said unto the elders of Midian, Now shall this company lick up all that are round about us, as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. He sent messengers, therefore, unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me." Peradventure I shall prevail, that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land. For I want that he whom thou blessest is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. And the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand. And they came unto Balaam and spake unto the words of Balak. And he said unto them, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again. As the Lord spake unto me, and the princes of uh, and the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. We'll stop there for just a moment. Let me just recap here, so we can make sure that we're all on the same page. Balak, a king of Moab, looks and sees the children of Israel who have come out of Egypt, and they are covering the wilderness uh, like. Uh, 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 and as they are there before him, he is fearful. He is in fear of his kingdom and of his power as king. And he, hire, he looks to hire a prophet of God named Balaam to come and to curse the children of Israel. He wants them to not have favor. So when he knows that impending battle is coming, that he will be victorious because God would have placed a curse upon Israel. That's what Balak desired to happen. Now, let's pick up the rest of the story. And Balaam said unto, uh, uh, and God said, uh, excuse me, uh, let me see, where was I? 
bring as the words, and the princes of Moab abode with, uh, abode with Balaam. And God came unto Balaam and said, What men are these with thee? And Balaam said unto God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt, which covered the face of the earth. Come now, curse me them. Peradventure I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. And God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. And Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, Get you into your land, for the Lord refuses to give me leave to go with you. So Balaam, simply as a prophet of God, relays what God said to these princes of Moab. I'm not going with you. Now, I'm not going to go into all the story because we don't have time this morning. But let me just kind of recap it. They come back. Balaam disobeys God, and he does go with them. God uses his donkey uh, to keep him from being uh, killed by the sword of an angel. Uh, and if you'll remember the story, God actually opened the mouth of his donkey to speak to, a, uh, to, uh, to Balaam. And Balaam, through that, humbled his heart before God and said, God, I recognize I've sinned, I've done wrong. God says, go, but you say exactly what I tell you to say. That situation right there puts put the fear of God in someone, amen? Balak, or Balaam was very careful from that point on to say what God had him to say. Now go to Numbers chapter 23. Look at verse number 5. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 5. Balak has taken Balaam up to offer a sacrifice again to God to again try to bring a curse upon the people of Israel. Notice what the Bible says in Numbers 23, 5. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return unto Balak, and thus thou shalt speak. Okay, very clear. And he returned unto him, and lo, he stood by his burnt sacrifice, he and all the princes of Moab. And he took up his parable and said, Balak, the king of Moab, hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse me, Jacob, and come, defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. And Balak said unto Balaam, What hast thou done unto me? I took thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast blessed them altogether. And he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak that which the Lord hath put in my mouth? So what did Balaam do? He said exactly what God told him to say to Balak. We won't go through the story, but this happened multiple times. Balak kept trying to get God to curse Israel, and God kept saying no. Balaam came and told, him, told Balak exactly what God had said. But watch this. Balaam had no love for the children of Israel. He didn't love those people. How do we know that? Look at Numbers chapter 31. We're almost done. Numbers 31, look at verse number 16. 
Behold, these caused the children of Israel, speaking of the Moabites, through the counsel of Balaam, to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the children of, or the congregation of Israel. If you were to read to the first part of Numbers 31, you'll see that Balaam is killed by the children of Israel. Why? Because of his wicked counsel that he gave Balak before he went back home. Before he decided to go back to go away, he said, Balak, I've got an idea. God's not going to let me curse the children of Israel. But if you commit immorality with the children of Israel, you'll bring a snare. You'll bring some chastisement. And God may give you an inroad because they've sinned. And he encouraged Balak to influence his people to be immoral with the children of Israel. And God plagued Israel because of their choice of sin. There was some chastisement. But Balaam said it, why? Because yes, he was a prophet of God, but he had no love for the people. Do you know it's possible for someone to speak the truth of God without any love for his people? And that's exactly what happened to Balaam. He was a prophet of God, but he did not love his people. The truth in love. Jesus stated it even this way. In Matthew chapter 7, as he spoke on the Sermon on, as, as we spoke in what we would call the Sermon on the Mount, in verse number 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Prophecy of seeing the truth of God and relaying that truth ought to have been done in love. And if we were to use that word prophecy as in preach, we can take that same admonition there's no prophecy like we see in the scripture god has finished his word we have his word today but if we use that and as far as relaying the truth of the word of god we need to do so in love we need to do so with the love of god loving people loving whom god has for us how vital it is that we speak or communicate with love Communication without love is like sounding brass, tinkling cymbals, or of no value at all. But notice Paul continues in verse number 2 of our text of comprehension without love. The Bible says, And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And notice again the last part of that verse, And have not charity, I am nothing. The Bible says, even if I were able to understand all mysteries 
all the things in which we look at the Word of God and try to put everything together. And God says, or Paul says, if there was someone who understands it, puts it all together, maybe like Zacharias, if you remember in Luke chapter 1, when Zacharias, who looked at the Word of God and knew that Jesus was coming soon, and he knew that he was going to see the Savior before his death. And the Bible tells us that Zacharias understood the mysteries of God. He understood, he had some knowledge of God. God. One has that ability or that talent to be able to understand it, but has no love for God is of no value. It doesn't add value. The love of God adds value to being able to give forth the Word of God. There are some people that I have seen in my life who understand the Bible incredibly. They can put things together in the Word of God that would take me years of study. And they just get it right away. I've seen some men who can quote the scripture like few others, and yet I've seen some of them who have done so without the love of God. They've done so without a heart for God. They've done so without a love for others. They've done so without the charity of God, and it has of no value. In fact, in many ways, it has destroyed ministries, hurt families, and has deeply wounded good people. It's a travesty, but it is possible for one to understand some of the mysteries of the Word of God, if we could put it that way, and have knowledge incredible in the Word of God. And yet, without the love of God, it can inflict wounds and hurt. Paul continues in verse number 2, And though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Paul speaks here about a miracle-working faith, one that has absolute confidence in God and being in God's will and sees God remove an obstacle from the path before them, has all faith and yet does not have charity. Can I give you the example here this morning? Go quickly to Matthew chapter 10. My time's up, but I want you to see this truth. This is so key as we look at the value that love gives to the tools in which God equips his believers with spiritual gifts. Some, as we've said, are done away, but God still equips his people with spiritual gifts. And with the love of God, they add great value. In Matthew chapter 10, notice what the Bible says in verse number 1. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power. Twelve disciples... This is before Jesus was betrayed. He gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus and Libius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and who? Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, Jesus Christ. These 12, not 11, these 12 Jesus sent forth. 
and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any of the city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. And they went, including Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot had action in faith. Was he saved? No, he was not. Did he do so through the love of God? It is apparent, no. But yet he did. But what value was it? He took his own life, did he not? Was it of any value? It was not. The love of God adds value. It is possible that someone has a a faith acting ministry without love. And that does not add value. But that love does add value. Reminded of the story of a lady named Corey Tenboom. I've told the story before. I'm not going to tell the entire story for the sake of time this morning. But the story is told on how she was giving a, uh, a, a, a speech on forgiveness. And as she was doing so, there was a Nazi soldier whom she immediately recognized as one whom gay was over her sister in captivity and how she had watched her sister succumb even in her own life because of the cruel and hateful punishment and hateful treatment that this Nazi soldier had inflicted upon her sister. She watched her sister die at the hands of the soldier. The wound was deep. She saw him come in as she's speaking about the love of Christ. And as she speaks of that, and she is almost just taken back that he's even there. Afterwards, he comes up, whether he recognized her or whether it was time passed, but yet some of the stories in which he told would have brought memories of uh, of those whom he afflicted and hurt deeply in the concentration camps. And he came up to her, and afterwards reached out her hand in a sign of forgiveness. And the Corey tells the story of how she stood there just paralyzed, seemingly like for an eternity, but she says in reality it was probably just a moment. She said, I was immediately confronted with the very message in which I had just given. Do I forgive? Do I extend that love of God? She stood there for what seemed, as she said, for for an eternity, rigid, not being able to move her arm, paralyzed at the scene in front of her, recognizing this guard who had hurt her so deeply. And then she said, I just suddenly had a moment of decision, a moment of deciding to forgive. And she said, I reached out my hand and shook his And she said, at that moment, she said, I've never felt the love of God so powerfully as I felt it at that very moment. 
She says it's that something came over me. She says that I could not fully ever comprehend or ever fully describe in words the power of that indication or of that forgiveness and of a show of the love of God had great value. It was a powerful moment. Why? Because it was comprehending the situation, but doing so with love. Love is the value. Lastly, in verse number three, Paul teaches about compassion without love. Look quickly. The Bible tells us, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Go to the end of the verse. And have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. That word bestow all my goods is actually speaking of a term in which is like giving mouthful to mouthful. It's like putting little bits of food into the mouth at a time. It's like feeding an infant. You feed an infant, you take one spoonful and you feed it to someone and then after they're done you take another spoonful but it's speaking of that mouthful by mouthful it's speaking of giving even to the poor goods whether it's food whether it's clothing whatnot but giving just enough why because you're giving just enough because you want that dependency you want them to be dependent upon you you want them to have just enough so you can get have that power over them if you don't come to me again you're not going to have tomorrow's food if you don't come to me this afternoon you're not going to be able to eat tonight and have that charity of giving to the poor but doing so causing them to be dependent upon you that's what the situation in which paul is speaking of here i remember years ago i was a teenager that my family and I, for as we celebrated Thanksgiving in the U.S., that my parents decided that we were going to celebrate it by going to a restaurant called Red Lobster. And we were going to prepare Thanksgiving meal for homeless in our city. Now, Thanksgiving is a time where in the States you eat. Amen. It's, uh, you know, kind of like Christmas here. We, we eat and we eat and we eat and then we eat some more. And then when we think we're done, we go and eat some more. Amen. You just enjoy eating. I like that. Amen. As you can tell, you know, it's good. Amen. Turk, there's nothing like turkey. Glory to God. Filled with gravy and scout corn and uh, all these green beans and vegetables and uh, everything that possibly could clog all your arteries. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Uh, and now we are going to take that day and we are going to go feed the poor. I was a teenager. I did not like it. I did not want to go. I did not want to help. I was against the idea. I tried to talk my dad out of it. I tried to talk my mom out of it. And it didn't work. And they took us there. And I remember going to the kitchen and I did not have a good attitude about it. It was like, bless God. If I gotta go, fine. Slap it on there, you know. Just having a bad attitude about it. Someone recognized someone else in that in that kitchen area that we were working in recognized my attitude, and he said, "Justin, why don't you work on this?" And he began to show me how to wash dishes there. And you know, 
God changed my heart. Suddenly, I began to realize that these empty plates were coming back because there were families that did not have food. I was helping them. There were people that had a good meal that I was going to enjoy later. But I was helping them. And suddenly it began to change my heart. And by the time we left, we were one of the last people to leave. And I was almost sorry to go. Because I had began to have a change of heart that recognized helping those who had who needed help. God wants us to have a heart that is willing to be compassionate on people with his love. It makes a difference. Paul even goes to the statement of, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. You know, it is possible for one to take pride in the fact that they are suffering even if it is for the truth, and they take pride in that suffering. Almost a victim-type mentality or a martyr-type mentality. I'm suffering, so because I'm suffering, I must be doing good. And somehow get a feeling of contentment over, I want to suffer just for suffering's sake. Not because God's brought us in a situation to where that's situation before us, but because... We want that attention of suffering for others or for suffering for a cause. Some have done this in ideologies that are so full of hate. Things like communism and even false religions serving a false Allah or false gods and have even become martyrs for their cause. But they do not have, what, the love of God. What does it profit? It doesn't add value. Paul warns us about using our gifts, the tools that God has provided each and every one of us. All of us have some area of service. All have some spiritual gift. But if we do so without God's love, it does not add Value is added, is multiplied when the love of God is given. May I encourage you this morning to not let the love of God be pushed aside in your heart, but rather may we serve with the love of God. Because it takes that simple tool and suddenly, it adds great value. God's love adds great value.